Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, during Lent this year, we have been talking together about the Christian disciplines, and we've talked about them uh, as the practices and the habits of the Christian life that put us in the places uh, where God ordinarily meets us with his grace. When we practice the disciplines as individuals or when we practice them uh, together as a church, we find ourselves healthy uh, and growing as followers of Jesus. They lead us into maturity and strength and wisdom as people. So that's why we're talking about them. We've talked about life together. We've talked about prayer and solitude. And this morning we're going to talk about giving. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15 for us. Um, before I do, I just want to mention, just for context, because we'll talk more about it, but uh, as you listen to this, be aware that this is the, the tail end of a request that the Apostle Paul is making to the church at Corinth to make good on a promise that they had already given him, um, that they would contribute to a relief fund for the poor in Jerusalem. All right, so I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 9. You can follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgivings to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now um, that you'd be happy to use this word that we've read together and heard together, that we're going to talk about together, uh, to meet us in whatever place we find ourselves this morning. Father, meet those of us who are here and who are ready and who feel close to you and we're ready to hear. We feel hungry and thirsty. Father, meet those of us who feel far from you, even though our bodies are here, our hearts are far away because you have maybe felt silent to us or because we have run from you. Meet those of us who are here this morning and aren't entirely sure why we've come at all and don't feel much of anything. Preeminently, Father, show us your grace to us in Jesus again. 
work in us this generosity that Paul is talking about in this passage. Change us as a people. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, on the morning of uh, September 11th, 2001, uh, like pretty much everyone else in the country, uh, I came here to work in a little bit of a daze. Now, I know that many of you were really young then, but some of you remember what that morning was like. It was uh, a disorienting morning. I had uh, been ordained just a couple of days before. My parents were still in town. They were the ones that called me while I was dropping Allison off at her job to tell me what had happened, what was happening in New York, what was happening in D.C. that morning. So I arrived here at work kind of confused um, and unsettled, and all of the rest of the staff started to slowly filter in, and we all kind of felt the same way, disoriented and, and uh, in shock a little bit. And we talked about what was going on, and um, we just decided to pray, not because it was a super spiritual staff, but just because what are you going to say, right? So, so we prayed. Uh, and just as we were finishing praying, um, the boss, the, the senior pastor at the time, walked in. Some of you remember uh, Dave Williams. He turned the corner to the room that we were in just as we were um, getting up from prayer, just as we were saying our final amens and just kind of standing up. And he looked at us and he read our faces and he read our body language in an instant. Um, And immediately all of our, whatever the look was on our face, transferred to his face. He, he bore whatever it was we were bearing. And I have to say that it was also, it lightened the mood a little bit because it was very clear that he didn't know what was going on. <laughs> and I'll never forget what he said. He said, it's obvious something is happening. What's happening? And as it turned out, Dave had ridden into work that morning in silence. He, he didn't know that he was living in the world that he was living in, and we were the ones who explained to him how things had changed that morning. And I think that the Apostle Paul is doing something very, very similar for his friends in Corinth in that passage that we just read together. He is describing this new world that they live in. He is describing the world that they live in so that they can begin to make sense out of what is happening around them. And in this instance, so that they can make sense out of what would otherwise really at best be a really confusing request. <laughs> in the world that they were living in, why, why would they ever really want to give their money away? Why, why would they want to give their money away to people that they've never seen and people that they'll never see again, right? I mean, it sounds good, and that's probably why they had promised Paul that they would be a part of it, because it sounded like a good thing to be a part of. But when the rubber hits the road and no one's looking over their shoulders, why would, we, why would they do that? I mean, they have their own obligations. They've got their own bills. They've got their own stuff that they've got to worry about using their money for. So why would they do something like that? Why is Paul bothering us about this? And I hear that, and I say that, and I'll be honest with you and tell you, I can relate to them. I can relate to their hesitancy. I think some of the same thoughts that they think when it comes to giving away what I have been given. Maybe you can relate too. 
And Paul knows this. He knows this about his friends in the church. He knows this about us. And so how does he respond? He does not respond with guilt. He does not respond with manipulation. He doesn't respond by laying down the law. Instead, he responds by describing to them the world that they actually live in. (laughs) Something is happening. What's happening? So Paul describes to them the world that they actually live in. He says, you live in a world that is created, that is redeemed, that is completely sustained every day by a God of wild, incomprehensible, inexpressible generosity. That's the world that you live in. It is completely upheld by the most generous being that you can ever imagine. And he tells them, and he tells us, You are objects of that wild and incomprehensible and inexpressible generosity. We live inside that world. We have been made objects of that generous love and grace deep in our being, deep in who we are. We are the products of that thing, that generosity. It is built, Paul says, into the grain of the world that we live in. And when we wisely live in that grain, we are finally living as fully human beings, exactly as we were created to be. That's the world that Paul tells his friends they were living in. And I I don't have to tell you, because you already know, there is a lot in our world, there's a lot in our heads, there's a lot in our hearts, there's a lot that pulls us, that screams to us that that is definitely not true. (laughs) That that is not true the world we live in, the one that is upheld and sustained and redeemed by generosity. A lot of things tell us it's not like that. So this is a good word for people like us. So here's the backstory to what we read. I think this is so fascinating and I think it's beautiful. At some point, Paul had told the church at Corinth Uh, about the saints, the sisters and brothers who lived in Jerusalem who were in extreme poverty. And he also told these friends at Corinth that he was taking up a collection, a relief collection, just to aid them, just to give them what they needed. And the Corinthian church had told Paul that they would be happy to give to that fund, but for some reason that's unknown to us, the check was not yet in the mail, as they say. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he writes to ask them to make good on their promise to give and to give it to a guy named Titus who he will be sending through Corinth. And he starts this appeal by telling them about another church, this church in Macedonia. Paul tells them this church lives in extreme poverty themselves and they begged me for the chance to give to this relief effort and they followed through on that desire and they gave money to that fund. And here's where things get really interesting. Paul doesn't tell the church in Corinth the amount that the Macedonians gave. As a matter of fact, he, he in these two chapters, doesn't use any of the normal words for money. He doesn't say the word money once in these two chapters. Two long chapters that are all about, hey, make good on this promise to give to this relief fund. Never once, never once does he use the word for money. What he does tell the church in Corinth in chapter 8, verse 2, is that the Macedonians, in the abundance of their joy, had overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Generosity. 
these extremely poor people had overflowed in a wealth of generosity. You see what's going on? The amount of money seems completely irrelevant to Paul. The thing that was relevant to Paul, the thing that really did matter to him, was that the Macedonians had given out of the abundance of their joy. As, as far as Paul is concerned, if there's anything to be counted, if there's anything to be measured up, then the only metric he is interested in using is the metric of generosity. They had given, even though they were poor, out of a wealth of generosity. Something is happening. What's happening? It's like he's telling his friends in Corinth, you had to be there. You have no idea how sweet this thing was. You have no idea how beautiful it was when they gave. You can't imagine how joyful they were. It was shocking to me how happy they were when they gave. It was surprising to me, even though it shouldn't have been, about how good this thing was for them. And then he tells the church in Corinth that that's why he wants to send Titus to them to receive their gift. He says, listen, you guys excel in everything. You excel in faith and you excel in speech and you excel in knowledge. He says, you you excel in being earnest. (laughs) So I want you to excel in this too. And Paul bends over backwards to tell them, I am not commanding you to do this. He's not commanding them. I mean, Paul probably could have commanded them, given who he was to them. But he would never do that. He would never do that because he was wise and because he had learned from Jesus' teaching. Like the teaching that we heard in the gospel lesson this morning. And I'll just say that that reading from Matthew 6, that is worth thinking about and meditating about a little bit. I hope some of you at least will do that. All of you will do that this afternoon. Just read that through and and think about that teaching from Jesus. But let me summarize what Jesus says there. He says our, our relationship to our money, our relationship to what we do with our money, it doesn't get sorted out by commands. It doesn't get sorted out by rules or laying down the law. It doesn't get sorted out by guilt or manipulation It doesn't get sorted out by thinking about how good or how bad we look or whatever in front of other people. Jesus teaches us that a right relationship to our money and what we do with our money is ultimately sorted out by figuring out who or what we really love and where we're really going to go to get life. No one's ever said it better than Jesus. (laughs) Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's just the truth, church. (laughs) It's just the truth about what it means to be human. We can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And everything in our lives, everything in our lives, including that piece of our lives that's about our money and what we do with it, everything in our lives moves towards the object of our deepest desire. It moves towards the thing that we love. And if we get what we love sorted out, then everything else falls into place. So, of course, Paul's not going to give them a command about this. He wants to direct their love. He wants to aim their love. 
to the one who generously loves them. And that's what he says. He says it in in chapter 8, verse 8. He says, giving to this fund is an opportunity to prove that your love is genuine. In other words, it's a collection that's really an opportunity for you to move your loves and incline your loves towards God and to live inside the grain of the world that you actually live in. A world sustained everywhere by the generosity of God. So that's the air that Paul's been flying around in. And now in our passages, he's taking the time now to land the plane. This is how he's going to end things. And he starts with this common wisdom that just comes from the farm. The point is this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In other words, as every farmer knows, the size of the harvest is directly proportional to the number of seeds that were sown. It's really simple. He wants the Corinthian Christians to be generous in giving because it will lead, this is what he says, it will lead to a generous harvest for you. Being generous will lead not only to the good of the people that they give to, it will also be for their own good. That's what Paul says. When we give, it is not just for the good of the people that we give to. It is for our own good. Now, it's pretty obvious how this is going to be good for the church in Jerusalem, right? For the poor in Jerusalem. They're going to have more to live on. Their kids are going to have food to eat. The widows will be taken care of. But what is the good that Paul thinks the Corinthians will get? What is that generous harvest that he expects for those who give? Well, let me tell you right out that Paul is not going to say, if you give your money away, you'll get more money in return. (laughs) You will look in vain to see if Paul ever says that or anywhere in the New Testament ever says that. Paul is not espousing some kind of prosperity theology. I can give you an example, I think, of how this works from our own life together as a church. We try as hard as we can to practice generosity as a church, to do this thing that Paul is telling the church to do. We try really hard to do it. And what that looks like is that every year we, as a people, give away 20 or 25 percent, somewhere in there, between there, of our budget. We just give it away. That's not easy to do. Some years it's harder to do than others, but that's what we do to faithfully be generous. And the money just goes right out the back door. (laughs) And it helps support the work of God all around our city and all around the world. It goes to Roseland on the south side. It goes to Austin on the west side. It goes to Romania. It goes to Bulgaria. It goes to Haiti. It goes all over the place. And I can honestly stand up here and report to you, it never comes back. (laughs) It never, ever comes back. And that does not make me sad. (laughs) And I hope that it does not make you sad. In fact, what it does is it makes me incredibly joyful. It makes me incredibly happy because I really believe what Paul is about to say next. I really believe that it's true. Here's what he says. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And that's it. 
That is the first taste of this incredible harvest that Paul expects that God's people will get when they give generously and joyfully. We get to taste God's love for us. We get to taste God's love for us in all of its sweetness, in all of its beauty, in all of its goodness. We taste God's love for us. And church, we know it more fully than we would have if we had not been generous. Who does not want that, man? Who doesn't want that? I want that for us as a church. I want it for all of us as a people. I want it for my own family. Who wouldn't want that? The more we open our hands, the more we give away the things that are impermanent and the things that don't matter, we grab hold of the only thing in the world that really does. God's love for us. And I i got to tell you, I want to get to the bottom of that. I want to go even further in that if I can. I mean, why is this true? How, how could Paul possibly say this is true, that it is love that we experience? It is love that is the harvest. Why, why does God say this? Why does he say, you know who I love? <laughs> I love people who give cheerfully and generously. Why does God love cheerful givers? Why does he love people who open up their hands and who give not under guilt and who give not reluctantly and who give not under compulsion? Why does he love people who give joyfully? Well, let me answer that as clearly as I can. (laughs) Because that's how God gives. (laughs) That's who he is. And he has made us in his image. And in Jesus, he is renewing us in that image. And when we give cheerfully, we are reflecting him back to himself, truly and faithfully. And just as importantly, we are reflecting his generous grace out into a broken world. And he loves it when we do that. He has made us to give like he gives. And that's why, at a very deep level, it feels good when we do it. That's why stories about people who give do something great in our hearts. (laughs) Because when we finally let go of stuff and give it for the good of others, we are sharing in the life of God. We are being who he created us to be. We are fully, fully human. Church, we share in his life when we give generously. And when we do that, we know his love more deeply. We share in God's life when we give generously. And when we do it, we know his love more deeply. Believe that, church. Believe it because it is absolutely true. So let me just say something very intensely practical here, all right? It's obvious from Scripture that while we shouldn't be people who give under compulsion, we should be givers who actually take the time to decide in our hearts about giving. In other words, we should be givers. Giving is simply one of the rhythms of the Christian life. Read Jesus' teaching on giving and you'll find it to be true. He doesn't say, hey... If you would like to exercise the option of giving, (laughs) he just says, when you give. 
And that's the backbone, of course, of Paul. That's the point that he's making here, that it's a Christian discipline, that something is amiss for us. We are at a loss for something when we don't give. So the application of this encouragement to his friends in the church to give as you've decided in your own heart is very, very simple. Have a plan for giving. Have a plan. You don't need to tell me giving, like all of the Christian disciplines, like the ones that we've already talked about, these are very difficult. And giving, in particular, doesn't happen usually unless we plan for it. So have a plan. It's a plan that starts by just taking a good look at what God has given you and asking yourself, what are you doing with it? I don't mean anything abstract by that. I just mean doing the math and going, what do I do with my stuff? And does it reflect what I love? And then make a plan. Prayerfully make a plan about where your money goes that includes giving and giving joyfully and generously. So for some of us here this morning, I know that'll mean starting from scratch. So just make a plan. Make a plan that moves from zero to something and give. For others of us, it might mean moving things around. It might mean that in order to align what we're doing with our stuff with what we really love, we're going to need to reprioritize things and move things around and say no to things in order to give more generously. For others of us, that might mean simply making sure that we follow through with the plan that we have in place and that we faithfully revisit it when our situation changes. The point that Paul is making is as practical as can possibly be. Make a plan to give. And church, when we do this, when we do this, here's what happens. The weird stranglehold that money has on people like us, it'll weaken. And we'll start to be free. I know this is one of those things I don't need to tell you, but money is, can be a harsh and cruel and demanding master. And it is way, way better and more freeing to put it into its proper place in our lives. The late uh, French philosopher Jacques Ellul captured this freedom from money as a master really well when he wrote that there is one act par excellence that profanes money because it goes against the law of money, an act for which money was not made. The act is giving. So Paul continues the agricultural imagery, and he says more about this harvest that he expects God's people will get when they give generously, and the harvest is nothing less than grace. So here's what, here's what Paul says. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, you may abound in every good work at all times. It's very subtle. <laughs> we get it, Paul. Giving generously is a means of grace to us. When we are a people who do that, we become more healthy, we become more mature as people, we become people who 
grow and deepen in our ability to love our families and our neighbors. And we live that love out, not in our heads somewhere, but in flesh and blood, in real time, in every good work. It's not abstract for Paul. There's nothing about this that is, that's abstract. Let's remember that he talks about this stuff because there are poor folks in Jerusalem who have very real needs. They need basic, everyday things that most of the Corinthians take for granted. So Paul wants his friends to know that the grace that will enable them to give generously is going to extend thousands and thousands of miles to people they've never seen, and it will supply their needs. It will be tangible to them. It will be real to them. It will look like daily bread. It will look like a place to sleep at night. It will matter a lot, more than the Corinthians can possibly imagine. And he says the church in Jerusalem will see the generosity of the church in Corinth And they'll see that this generosity was a direct result of the fact that they believe in Jesus. And in turn, they'll overflow in many thanksgivings to God. They will glorify God. So what is this picture that Paul is painting? If you step back and see it, it is the church as a unity being a living and breathing witness to the generosity of God. It's the church being, as Jesus puts it, a city that is set on a hill. And that'll be really good, not just for the church in Corinth and not just for the church in Jerusalem, but for the whole broken world who are hungry and thirsty, even if they don't know it, for the generous grace of God. So this is how Paul signs off. He says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. That refers back to something that he wrote in chapter 8. It's familiar maybe to some of us. This is what Paul wrote. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The inexpressible gift is the willing poverty of Jesus on the cross so that we could have everything forgiveness of sins and peace with God and a vocation to work life with him in making things that matter and things that last. Church, the the self-giving love of Jesus on the cross is the clearest example of generosity, the, the greatest example of generosity that we will ever see, that the world will ever know. And it is at the very same time the power that works in people like you and me to be people who work generosity out in our own lives. Church, the gospel is the one thing in the whole world that can defang and dethrone money from all of the harsh, weird mastering it does in our lives. Because when we believe, Jesus' inexpressible gift to us becomes our security and our status and our power and our safety and our only comfort in life and death. And then finally, happily, money can take its proper place in our lives as a good gift from God given to us to be used for the good of others. So let's cling to Jesus and practice the Christian discipline of giving. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would Help us to see there are so many things you know how deeply 
and how firmly there are lots of masters in our world that have a hold over us, and money is one of these things. And so, Father, do whatever you need to do to help us to turn away from that and to drop that as a master and direct our loves towards Jesus who has given us everything. Father, do that so that we will feel freedom, so that all of the other good things that you have given us in our lives will find their proper place, places where we can use them for the good of those around us and, the, and for the life of the world. Father, we ask that you would do this for our good and do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.